So recently, I was watching a video where someone was trying to make a biblical argument in defense of Satan. Um, where they actually were saying, in the Bible, it says that Satan wanted to give human beings knowledge, and God didn't. So see, Satan is better. Now, I already saw some... No, no worries, that did not convince me, okay? Um, what, what, what came to my mind immediately was just thinking about how Satan deceives. He takes half-truths and he outright lies, but just twists things or, or stops a phrase at a certain point. And that's exactly what this person was doing because it wasn't that Satan said, um, hey, I want you guys to have knowledge. That's not what it was. He wanted them to eat from the, from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of what? good and evil. There's a specific kind of knowledge. In the, in the Hebrew, this, this idea for knowledge uh, is, is to have this intimate awareness, this, this experiential knowledge that is going to take place. If you eat from this, you are going to then experience a world where good and evil collide. And so Adam and Eve ate from that and good and evil have collided and we live in a world of confusion, we live in a world of brokenness, we live in a world of sin that happens to us and sin in our own hearts that come out. We have experienced confusion and pain and tension because of that knowledge. Now I already said... At the beginning of the service, you see this here, that our focus today is on God's message of hope. When I listen to that person trying to defend Satan, in, in some senses, they were saying, we should hope in Satan. Satan gives us hope because he gives us knowledge. And yet... When we understand the knowledge that Satan has wanted us to have, I don't think any of us would ever say thank you, right? I, I, I don't love experiencing brokenness and sin, do you? But that's what Satan wanted. And humanity has been plunged into brokenness ever since. Yet God has not rejected humanity. God has even come to us in the midst of our confusion and comes alongside of us to acknowledge this pain. One of the books of the Bible that acknowledges this confusion, I think, most, and most consistently, is the book of Ecclesiastes. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a, it's a sermon. It's written by the preacher, who I believe is Solomon. And Solomon acknowledges this confusion. And what, what Solomon is doing throughout this, this sermon is he's trying to describe how he sought for hope in so many different things. Because Solomon had everything. So he's like, I'm going to look to money. I'm going to look to women. I'm going to look to power. I'm going to look to making a name for myself. I'm going to just look to work. Is that going to give me this hope 
that I'm yearning for. Yet he admits that no matter what he does, there's always this reality that these things fade away. This, this idea of a vapor, you know, we're, we're in cooler times, or it's going to get colder again. And I know when I was a kid, and I still do this as an adult, go outside, and what do I do on a really cold day? Why do I, why do, I do that? Why, but I do. I want to see it. Oh, I can see my breath. <laughs> Look at that. But, but you can only see it for that, right? It's a mist. It quickly appears, goes away. And what Solomon is saying in the book of Ecclesiastes, when he says, all of life is vanity, he says, it, it, that's what happens. You live for money, you live for stuff, you live for fame, you live for work. I mean, it'll give you some sense of some kind of meaning for a time, but it's going to go away. It's going to vanish because we live in this world where everything dies. Everything dies. It disappears. And so Solomon throughout Ecclesiastes is wondering, what's the point of living What's the point of living? The brokenness of everything, living intimately in a world of good and evil, leads to this confusion. How am I supposed to live? What's the main point of living? And Solomon has a phrase that I find particularly helpful in Ecclesiastes. And it's this phrase, under the sun. Under the sun when he's using that phrase, he's saying, and we might be confused too. I mean, we all live under the sun, which makes it a perfect illustrative phrase. But all we can do as human beings is evaluate on the basis of what we see. We all live under the sun, and I see all this stuff under the sun. And Solomon is saying, that's all I can see, so I'm going to turn there, I'm going to turn there, I'm going to turn there. But guess what? I can see those things, I can hold on to those things, and all those things vaporize. We live under the sun, and this seems so futile. You would think that what you can see, taste, and touch would actually last but what Solomon is also doing, I think, with this phrase, under the sun, is to give us this idea that there's something above the sun. There's a, there's a bigger reality. I remember years ago when I was preaching through Ecclesiastes, some of you may even remember this. There was a preacher who, who gave another illustration with this phrase that really helped me. How many of you have ever seen a beautifully woven rug? Not like you know, where it's mass-produced, but like, how many of you have ever seen one of those, okay? And how many of you, you look, at the, you look at the rug, and then how many of you have looked at the bottom of the rug? You know, it's just like if you've ever looked at cross-stitch, right? <laughs> one side, oh, that's, wow! Oh my goodness! You know, and you would never see somebody take that rug and put the underside on the top, Right? If you were to watch somebody actually put those rugs together, they have this loom. And let's just say you're laying down and all you can see is the underside of the loom as it's all being put together. You're under the loom. And, and being under the loom, you might say, why are those colors there and why are there these knots over here? This is messed up. Or you can trust the one who is above the loom 
and knows what he's weaving. Right? We live under the sun. And under the sun, our human sinful tendency is to find our meaning and identity and worth and value in what we can see. And Solomon finally gets to a point at the end of the letter or at the end of his sermon where he says, here's the whole matter. What is it? Fear God and keep his commandments. There is one who is above the loom. There's one who is above the sun. You can't see him, but he lasts forever. And he gives you hope in the midst of this world where evil and good come together. He gives hope. Isn't that what we have even seen for those of us who have been going through Genesis and you know how many ever months ago it was that we were in Genesis 3? Adam and Eve sinned and then what did God do for Adam and Eve? He, he declared the promise that there's going to be a seed of the woman that's going to come. And this seed of the woman, this is going to be one that's going to be the serpent crusher. He is going to destroy the serpent, but not just destroy the serpent. He is going to put death to death. He's going to kill death. To give hope to people for all eternity, not just in this life. And so we even saw that Adam and Eve, they believe this promise of God. And I believe we see that belief when Adam named Eve, Eve, the mother of all living. Even though Eve was one who sinned and death came through Adam, Adam in faith names her mother of all living. Why? Because God made a promise that the one the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent and bring life. And so we find in the Old Testament scriptures and in Genesis even, the people, there are people who trusted God and his promise. Noah declared to be righteous. He trusted God and his promise. And then we even just recently concluded studying through Abraham's life. And Abraham trusted God and his promise. I love how Paul talks about Abraham and he says, In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. What does that mean? In hope, he believed against hope? Well, let's think about this under the sun kind of thing. If I just live evaluating life under the sun and what I could see, my hope is gone. Abraham's hope is gone. Why? Because his body was as good as dead. He could not, he could not reproduce. He could not have a child. He's too old for this. But he had hope that exceeded the type of hope that only this world can give. What was his hope in? God. God made a promise. So shall your offspring be. And that word offspring is really important, isn't it? The seed. Because it's not only that Abraham is thinking about many people, although that is part of it. The Apostle Paul also says in Galatians, there's one, one offspring, one seed. Abraham and Sarah learned over time to refuse to trust what they could see with their eyes. And they rested their hope in the Lord. This is what Solomon is getting at in Ecclesiastes. Fear God, keep his commandments, 
This is what we see in the saints, hope in the Lord. Now, when I say hope in the Lord, though, we might have a weird definition. And I would say that probably many of us fall prey to just the, if I can say it this way, just the worldly type of definition, just the under the sun definition of hope. So here's, here's an example of the under the sun type of definition of hope. I really hope that when we go on vacation, our kids don't get sick. What, what does that mean? What does the word hope mean there? It means like, it would be really, really nice, and I really, really want that to be the case. Murphy's Law, though, says what? They're going to get sick. One of them, at least. Or maybe even you, right? So I hope, but my hopes can die, right? Or I hope I get this present for Christmas, or I hope that we're going to have this for lunch. I hope I can take a Sunday afternoon nap, right? All these hopes, that's all under the sun. When I say, and when the scriptures say, put your hope in God, is the scriptures just saying, well, we'll see if God is as amazing as he says he is, but he may not be. Is that what it means by hope? Not at all. This word for hope is bigger and broader. And it's a hope that those of us who know Jesus can actually have. That we don't, just, we don't have to just have the under the sun definition of hope. We can have a hope that secures us even when our under the sun hopes die. Right? It reminds me of what Solomon writes actually in the Proverbs. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish. If you don't know Jesus Christ and you're not living for Christ, everything you live for here, everything you look for identity, meaning, salvation, and rescue, they die. So guess what? You die too. And they die with you. And Solomon says earlier, the hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. Now, here, we actually, this is Hebrew poetry, and Hebrew poetry uses parallelisms, like one line defines, the second line defines the first line, or the first line defines the second. You see this word hope, the hope, and what is the next section, the what? Expectation. Hope and expectation are brought together. It's not just I anticipate something or I look forward to something maybe happening. It's also I expect this. Have you ever had expectations and then they didn't happen? And how happy were you? Right? I remember long, uh, there's, a, there's a Christian from the 1800s, George Mueller. And somebody asked him at one point in time, how are you so joyful? And he said, I have learned to have no expectations. How did you learn that? Right? Well, we can read his story in his life and we can discover over time how God has done that. But the idea is... Like the earthly expectations, I can't set, I can't anchor myself in those things because they're all going to disappear. So the expectation of the wicked is going to die. But the hope of the righteous brings joy. Why? Because we're anchored in something, someone above the sun. We're anchored there so that, if I can use this illustration of anchoring, like in a boat, even though the storms may come, the anchor is anchored, so I might move in the midst of it, but I am secure. 
I am secure. And then there's going to be a day where all my expectations are going to be seen. And it's going to be even greater than I could ever imagine. As what the Apostle Paul says, that hope does not disappoint. Hope in the Lord does not, you will not be disappointed. Isn't that amazing? Even the best of things, I can be like, well, you know, I wish that was different. No. It's going to be so much greater. The expectation and anticipation of the righteous brings joy. So this leads me to a question for us as we think about hope. Where is your hope anchored? Now I know, I asked this question, we're sitting in church, and right away you give the Sunday school answer, Jesus. Oh yeah, it's totally Jesus. Okay, okay. I just want you to think though like practically in your life. Where do you anchor? Maybe you have multiple anchors you're trying to anchor yourself to. Just in case, you know, Jesus might fall through. I've got to have this anchor over here. Where is your hope anchored? And then my question to that is why? Why do you anchor yourself in that thing? I mean, practically speaking, your daily, weekly, monthly, yearly hopes could be in your plans and accomplishing those things, and you feel really successful when you do those things, and you feel approved and affirmed. And Why, why are you anchoring yourself in those things? Now, some of you could say, no, I am anchored in Jesus. I mean, I vacillate. I, I kind of move around in the waters, but I'm anchored in Christ. Okay, I still want to ask why. Because I've had many conversations with people who they'll talk about their life being bound up in Christ or their hope being in Jesus. But if I probe and ask why, it really doesn't sound like their hope is in Jesus. It sounds like their hope is in Jesus giving them the things that they believe that they should have. And sometimes that can be a very subtle thing. You know, we, you get like these nice things in a season of life that seems very much at peace. Oh, praise the Lord, he's so good. And by the way, we should thank God for all the blessings he gives, right? Yes, we should. However, some people, and we can fall into this too, right? That some of us can begin to just praise the Lord when we get all the things that we think we should get. And then when he doesn't give us the certain things or he doesn't answer the prayers the way we, we think we ought to receive, who are, what, how dare you? Where is your hope? Is God just a really powerful, amazing, awesome genie who blesses your life with all the things that you're really anchored to? Or are you anchored to the Lord? Because he is the hope. He is the hope. I'm not just saying he gives hope. He is the hope. So as we think about hope, I want us to walk away knowing that humanity's hope is in a gracious relationship with God. 
living in his goodness forever. That's what we expect and anticipate. And Jesus alone gives us this. Jesus alone gives us this. Put another way, we were made for a being and we were made for a place. Our triune God is that being and the new heavens and new earth is that place. And only Jesus can give us this. That is hope. That is hope <laughs> beyond what the under the sun world can give to us. Um, maybe a little bit of a side note. Kids and kids at heart, how many of you are looking forward to opening presents on Christmas morning? And everyone else is liars. I like presents. I enjoy them. But you know, it was, I was just talking with another family member who got me presents last year. And, and I had to like, wait, what did you get me? Do you ever have that? What did I get last Christmas? Uh, oh, oh, yeah. And then you can't even remember all of them. We look forward to Christmas morn, right? Our kids, I can't wait to get up, I can't wait to get the gift. 12 months later, what did we get you last year? I don't know. Why do I spend money on you? <laughs> but see, that's what worldly hope is. That's what under the sun hope is. It lasts for a little while, right? But I want a hope that lasts longer. Don't you? I want a hope that is sturdier. I want a hope that anchors me in the storm. I want a hope that I can have when my other hopes fall apart. I want that hope. Our God is that hope. And so what I want to do, you know, even as I say this, Jesus alone gives us this. You could say, well, wait a second. How, how can Jesus alone do this when we have these saints in the Old Testament? They didn't know Jesus, and yet you've read verses that have already said they hoped in God. But I've also said they hoped in the promise of God of, of the serpent crusher, of the Messiah to come. And what I want to do in just a few moments this morning is go to some other Old Testament examples of how they hoped in the serpent crusher. And I think that that should serve as an example to us as well because they were yearning for the advent, the coming of the Messiah. And guess what? We are yearning for the second advent of the Messiah, right? Their example in the Old Testament serves as an example to us of hope and yearning. Christmas, Jesus come to this earth 2,000 years ago, should propel us to long for his future return and to live in light of that future return. So I want to go to a couple of other Old Testament examples where we see how hope, hope buoyed them, anchored them. And the first example I want to see is Job. Job went through horrific suffering. All of his children die in one day. And later on in the record of Job, very famous verse, though he slay me, can we just say this together? I will hope in him. He doesn't say, I will hope in the stuff that he's given to me. Because it's all gone. I will hope in him. Him. 
How can Job say that? It's because he knows, he knows he can't evaluate God on the basis of what he can see. God is above the loom. Job trusts the goodness of God. And a little bit later, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, what does that mean? After my body in the grave has deteriorated, yet in my flesh I shall see God. He's made for a being and a place. And this is Job's hope. This is his confidence. I know my Redeemer, the one who rescues me. It may not happen. I may not experience more of these blessings again in this life, but I do know there's an eternity. And my Redeemer's there, and I will see him. That belief of Job is all of grace because his hope is not ultimately in that the pain of this life is going to go away or that his children are going to come back. His hope is not, my friends are magically going to start like actually caring about me. His hope is anchored in the Lord and his mercies. That's the mindset as well of King David. King David, as we read the songs that he wrote, we hear of hope when he says, Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in, say it, you. Hope in you. Or chapter 42, or Psalm 42, Why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Or Psalm 71, for you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Or Psalm 130, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. (laughs) Do you even notice what what David said when, when he was questioning why he was feeling or sensing a certain way. Why are you so downcast, oh my soul? What was his answer to himself? Put your hope in God. Soul, why do you feel this way? Have you ever experienced that before? Why, 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 just, I don't know why I feel this way. I, preach to your soul. That's what, that's what David does. He doesn't just listen to it. He preaches to himself and says, soul, put your hope in God. Why? Because God is our hope. God is that good. God is that glorious. God is that wonderful. Our hope is in him because he is our salvation. And what David says here to all of Israel, with him is plentiful redemption. My goodness. Like, I just look at that and say, redemption. Redemption's enough. Right? Redemption would be like the solving of everything. Why does David add plentiful? That seems redundant. It is because it's so great. It's greater than what we can imagine. Beyond what our eyes can see or perceive or comprehend. Hope. Hope in God. He's going to fulfill his promise. Hope in God. He is that glorious and that good. And then I also look at 
the prophets of Isaiah, or prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah, just picking on those two prophets. Both of them endured immense suffering. Both of them killed by the Israelites. Jeremiah probably saw the worst of circumstances in the nation of Israel because Israel was captured by Babylon, taken into captivity. So many people were slaughtered. But I want you to hear words from Isaiah and Jeremiah in the midst of their ministries. And Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. This actually reminds me of a hymn. It was written, I believe, it was a man by the name of William Cooper. And he, he says, Behind a frowning providence. So providence is circumstances in our lives that, and God is over them all. So behind a frowning providence, he, God, hides a smiling face. You just let that sink in. Christian, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. This is what I think Isaiah is getting at, the same truth. God is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. He's still the only hope. He is above the loom. He's above the sun. And similarly, I think of Jeremiah. Where Jeremiah writes a book that's named Lamentations. I think a lot of people talk about Ecclesiastes being the most depressing book, but like Lamentations. Who wants to be the author of that? I mean, even Jeremiah didn't want to. God, you, it, it, Jeremiah says in his other writing of the prophecy of Jeremiah, he says, you've deceived me, God. Here I am. I'm wanting to serve you. And then this all happens to me. But in this book of Lamentations, Jeremiah details the horrors that were taking place to the people and, and, and the horrible things that even, even God's people were doing. But right smack dab at the center of this poetry, he gives just beautiful words of hope, rays of hope. And the reason why it's smack dab in the middle is, is that's, that's a form of writing in order to call attention to what is the most essential message in this, in this writing. He doesn't negate all the lamenting. Oh, it's all lamentable, but... There's this. This I call to mind. And therefore, I have hope. What gives him hope? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. What does that mean? If you have food, you have a portion. And it is satisfying, right? The Lord is my portion, says my soul. The Lord is. He's who I feast on. It's like what we did in communion. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. 
God's good. Remember again, Jeremiah's hope is not in the circumstances changing for him. His hope is in God and God's promises. That anchors him in the storm. Get that? God is his satisfaction. God is his sustenance in food. And therefore, in the midst of the storm, he says, it is good that one should wait quietly. <laughs> oh, this just popped into my head. Should I say it? I'll say it. I might want to pick on my kids, but I'm going to pick on myself too here. My kids, especially when they were younger, did not wait quietly very well. You know what? You have been disobedient. You go over to that corner. You just be quiet over there. Why? 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 Dad, 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 dad. 20 seconds. When am I getting out of here? Stop. Now, I said I pick on my kids, but I can pick on myself too. When we go through trials and tensions, how well do we rest while waiting? We do the same thing, right? But Jeremiah indicates that knowing the Lord as our hope, knowing, and Job says, knowing that I am going to see him someday face to face with my own skin, Knowing those realities settles my soul. He is worth the wait. He's worth the wait. Humanity's hope is in a gracious relationship with God, living in his goodness forever. But it's very important. It's very important, the line that I had up there earlier. And Jesus alone gives this. Jesus alone gives this. The patriarchs, the judges, the kings, the prophets, they yearned for the Messiah, Jesus. They didn't know his name, but they knew his title. There is a king on a throne full of power with a sword in his fist. Is there ever going to be a king like this? He's going to come. And the prophets prophesied, and you get Isaiah, you get Jeremiah, you have the Babylonian captivity, and then you finally get the final prophet, and then silence. 400 years. 400 years, and they don't hear a message from God through a prophet. What's going on? Does God keep his promises? Yes. And in relative obscurity in a little town called Bethlehem, as the hymn says, in its dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in him that night. Hopes and fears. Jesus answers the tension of the reality of us 
living in a world where there's good and evil. And Jesus comes in to face that. Hope has come. Gracious relationship and eternal home with the Lord in his goodness is offered and given to all who turn to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the hope. And Jesus himself alludes to that later on in his ministry when he talks to the religious leaders. He says, there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. What does he mean? They, they set their hope in Moses. Well, even as that song at the beginning of the service had, so long, Moses. Why? Because Moses wasn't the one. You're going to anchor your eternal hope in Moses? You're done. Moses, Moses was pointing to a greater prophet. We see that explicitly in Deuteronomy. I've used this illustration in the past. I find it helpful for me. Maybe it'll be for you. But Moses and the others were pointing to the Messiah. Now, if you have a very young infant and you point, what do they do? And you're like, no, look over there. No, look over there. Why do you keep looking at my finger? I'm pointing over there. Look over there. Eventually, they get it, right? Eventually, they understand, oh, my parent is pointing me in that direction. But early on, they just look at the finger. And that's what the religious leaders were doing. They were reading Moses, staring at Moses' finger as Moses is saying, look to the prophet. Look to the great prophet that's going to come. And Jesus says, if you would have believed Moses, you would have believed me. You would know who I am. Everyone in the Old Testament pointing to the Messiah. Moving further into Isaiah and Isaiah talking about a suffering servant and a conquering king who truly is going to fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham. And Matthew writes of how Jesus fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy by quoting Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the who? That's interesting. Why not Israel? A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the what? Gentiles will hope. That's the world. And isn't that what God said to Abraham? Through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through this offspring that's going to come, and we will hope in him. By God's grace through Jesus, we will actually be able to trust the one we cannot see who is above the sun instead of clinging to our hopes in this world under the sun. And so, so the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 6, says, 
we have this as a sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What? When Jesus, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, we have eternal hope waiting for us. We have eternal, gracious fellowship with God that has begun now and continues in glorious splendor in the future. We have this hope as an anchor to our souls. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God, for I shall yet again praise him. If I can say it another way, those saved by Jesus are anchored above the sun because of the sun. Now we can live under the loom, knowing that God is actually weaving together a glorious plan beyond our comprehension for all eternity future. This is how the saints in the Old Testament lived, waiting for the advent of Jesus. This is how we share commonality with the old saints, waiting for the second advent of Jesus. God is weaving together all things for my eternal good because of Jesus Christ. Jesus coming to this earth 2,000 years ago means there is hope for any who trust in him. And we can share in this hope just like the Apostle Paul did in Romans 8 when he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We live in a world where we know good and evil. But there's a point to this. Not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. <laughs> We're going to be united with our Father. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? This is above the sun hope. In this hope we were saved. Do you know that God wants you to look forward to Jesus' return? Did you know that? Did you know that the scriptures say in the New Testament, it even says that there is a crown for those who eagerly yearn for his return. Why? Because as the Apostle John even said, those who have this hope in him purify themselves even as he is pure. This hope of him coming again and us being with him. Our lives will change in the here and now. Peter himself even says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How am I going to live in this life? By thinking about Jesus and when he came 2,000 years ago and what he did and what he accomplished and also thinking that I'm going to see him someday face to face. And so I love actually the conciseness of the Apostle Paul. 
when he says, don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. How? 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 Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. That's a really easy verse to memorize. Verse 12. Don't you think? Maybe take some time this week and just rehearse that over and over again. Rejoice in hope. That doesn't mean the trials are gone. Be patient. The loom looks messy, but it's beautiful. Be constant in prayerful dependence on the Lord. Because Jesus has come, humanity's hope is in a gracious relationship with God, living in his goodness forever. Praise the Lord for assured hope we have in Jesus through his advent in the past that anchors us in the present for a joyous eternity future. Let's pray. And as I pray, I'll also ask the ushers, they can come forward, and the choir as well is going to come forward and minister to us too. Father, thank you. You are good and you are great. And you are the God of all hope. You are our hope. And so I pray and ask that you would open our eyes to the freedom and life that we have in you. And that if there are those here who have never trusted in Jesus Christ, that you would overwhelm them with your amazing grace. And for those of us who do trust and are anchored to Christ, may we always be reminded that we really are anchored in the heavens and we can endure, we can endure the trials. We can endure the storm, not because of us, but because Jesus is our hope, in whose name we pray, amen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.